Let me know if there's anything that I can do for you is so triggering. I don't even know what I need. Just think for me. That's the worst question in the world. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. It's Lisa, and I'm here to talk about that quote-unquote worst statement in the world to say to a caregiver, which you've probably said before. I know I have. This awful, terrible, no good statement is, drumroll please, let me know if there's anything I can do for you, right? You have a friend or maybe an extended family member or maybe just someone you know, and you know they're a caregiver and you really want to help genuinely, but you really don't know how. So you say something like, well, just let me know if there's anything I can do with the best of intentions. But be warned, if you ask a caregiver, let me know if there's anything I can do, you might see the light go out in their eyes. They might start uncontrollably sobbing or perhaps they'll excuse themselves to go outside and scream. Because this is such a frustrating thing to say to a caregiver, even if you really wanna help. So why is this question, this statement, so triggering to caregivers? What's a better alternative? And most importantly, why is it so important that we try and support them at all? Today, I really want to explore how people who aren't caregivers can help those who are in the thick of it. Many of you are caregivers. Many others will be caregivers someday. And just about all of you will know and care about someone who's a caregiver at some point. We know that caregiving isn't something one person can do alone. And we want to be there for the people we love. And yet, from the outside looking in, we might not know what to do. What would be most helpful? How do we know what's appropriate based on our relationship with the caregiver and what would be overstepping? And to you caregivers who are listening and wondering, well, what can I get from this episode? Fear not. We're also going to explore how caregivers can respond to this question. So let's start by trying to understand why this innocuous sentence, let me know if there's anything I can do, is so unhelpful. I just remember back when someone would say that to me, immediately my first thought was, yeah, no, I won't. There are three ways that it came across. The first and most rare way was if it was a really good friend, and I took it more as a commiseration. Like, man, this is tough. I'll help. Yeah, I mean, whatever you need. This was tricky. I knew they meant it, and they were trying to guess what I'd say. They also know me to just, well, take care of business myself. After all, I don't want to bug my friends or overburden them. I need them. And I learned that I had to sort of hold on to this asking for help card and save it for when I really needed it. Another way I could take it was someone who was still earnest, but who really doesn't know me very well, like I'm not in their inner circle. They'd really like to help, but they don't know what to say. And although it's very nice, I don't have the mental energy to think of something in that moment or the emotional energy to nurture this friendship to the level of intimacy where I'd actually ask them for help. That time has passed. But the third way, and by far the most common, was when someone would say, let me know what I can do for you, just as a social pleasantry. It was done as a way to end a conversation. Like, it seemed like a good way to be nice and to get out of the conversation. A social marker, like, nice to see you, take care. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you. 
Now, I want to turn your attention to Lauren Lowry. You might remember her. She's a mom of a son with a rare genetic disorder who talked to us in our episode about perfectionism. Here's what she had to say about why this kind of support is so unhelpful. A big thing is, instead of saying, oh, what can I do to help? Whenever you are burnt out, living in survival mode, you don't have access to the part of your brain that can problem solve. Sure. You don't have access to the part of your brain that can critically think and give them an answer and say, okay, yes, I need this done and this done and this would be helpful. You don't have access to that. When I'm living in survival mode, trying to think of a task to delegate to someone else can feel like an impossible task of its own. I'm in the thick of caregiving. I have a million things going on. I'm trying to keep myself alive as well as this other person who is totally dependent on me. And now someone wants me to analyze my whole situation and figure out what I can do and what can be done by someone else. So asking this question shifts the onus on the caregiver to figure out what needs to be done. And the caregiver here is the person who doesn't have any extra mental energy. When we ask that question, what can I do to help? That's the worst question in the world because the answer is not going to be some wonderful thing like bring me flowers every day or say something nice. It's so much deeper. This is Suzanne Deggs-White, a professor at Northern Illinois University. Sometimes what we need is someone to help us do the dirty work of caregiving. Please wash these dirty sheets because I can't go down those stairs again because my knees are hurting. Please sit with this person for a half an hour because I feel like I'm going to lose my cool if I have to listen to this complaint again. I can't make it better. I think when we're giving care to someone, we sometimes romanticize it in our heads. We don't think about the hard work or the dirty work that's involved. And why should it be a caregiver's job to tell us what they need? I personally resonate with this. When I was a caregiver, I thought a lot of the assumed caregiving tasks were being offered. So people would ask, well, I can come and sit with Christopher or I can take him on a walk or I can take him for an outing, which isn't really what I needed. I wanted to be with him. What I really needed was somebody to do my dishes or clean my bathroom. And that's just not as glamorous. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, great, I've totally asked this question before and now I feel bad. Well, I don't want you to feel bad. There is an alternative and we're all doing the best that we can, right? So should we just keep our mouths shut and not say anything? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. I asked our guests what a more helpful alternative is. I went to the source, to the caregivers who have been in this situation and have had time to think about it. Here's what Suzanne Deggs-White had to say. Can I mow your yard or do your laundry? What would you rather me do? Can I do this or that? Because you're not saying, can I do this for Mm -hmm. you? You're saying, which do you prefer? You know, which would be better? I'll bring you dinner Wednesday or Thursday and you can choose. As we talk to caregivers, this is a pattern that kept coming up over and over. Caregivers said, give us options. Don't ask a caregiver what you can do for them. Give them choices. This is caregiver Billy Short. I would love to help you out. Would you like me to bring you a coffee one day this week or would you like me to drop off dinner on Tuesday or Wednesday? Choices. Would a gas card be more helpful or, you know, a DoorDash card? Don't let caregivers make another decision. Make it for them. Give them an option between one or two things. Give them a choice between one or two things. I love this because it takes the pressure to come up with a service act off the caregiver while still preserving their ability to choose what's most helpful. 
Tipa Snow is a caregiving expert and the founder of Positive Approach to Care. Here's what she had to say. Would you rather go out or would you rather stay here? Oh, stay here. Okay. Would you rather have something to eat or would you rather, you know, we do something together like a board game? Use either or. Yeah. Give the either or option. This or something else. This or that. And and things that are a little different. So the person gets to have choices, <laughs> but they're concrete and they're simple. And we don't know till you pick what you're going to pick. And that's OK. Sure. Because I'm the one that can be flexible as the friend, but you're the one who can't come up with stuff out of nowhere. So I'm giving you these options that might work. Yeah, it, it avoids that conversation that's so unhelpful. I want to do something with you. Would you rather that we look at Tuesday or we look at Friday? Morning or afternoon? So choices, but this one is I'm asking you for a favor. So Mm. this is a recognition that carers sometimes have a really hard time asking for help. And so who's asking for help here? I'm sort of sneaky because then it, that feels different, doesn't it? Tiba also suggested that if you know the caregiver well enough, a surprise delivery could make their day. To give them a surprise delivery of something that will just totally be that sweet spot, that thing that gives them a moment of pleasure and joy and satisfaction, whether it's something to eat, something to drink, flowers, even just a card where you know your carer well enough, the person who's caregiving, that you know something they would enjoy and you work out the details of how to get the support in place so they can enjoy the surprise. That's stellar. A second one is to know something that is from the past and bring it forward. And so if something has happened in the past that has been a good thing in the past, to use something from that good experience from the past to offer something that warms the person up or a time that's really hard right now. They're feeling that thing. And so whether it's music or whether it's an experience or whether it's pictures in an album, where you bring back something from the past so we get to celebrate something together that's outside. And, you know, I'm not in the mix here, but I do know you as a human being. I really resonate with how meaningful a gift can be when it reminds you of a better time before all the craziness of caregiving. I have a friend, Rebecca, who has a ridiculously difficult, beautiful life. I could go on and on about what a wonderful person she is and has really been to me since our college days dancing to ABBA and waitressing at the underground restaurant. We check in on each other, that kind of real friend. Now, during my hardest caregiving days, think five sad kids at home, a dying husband, no time, a global pandemic, isolation, all of the hardest things. During this time, she was having a difficult time. And the difficult things I won't name here for her privacy, but just know that I don't think I could have handled the things she has had to and continues to. Well, we were, we still are quite a pair. (laughs) She would say to me with great love and empathy, I'm so sorry. I wish I could help you. And I'd say to her, well, I wish I could help you. And on some of my most difficult days, usually when I was feeling sorry for myself, I'd get a DoorDash delivery from her, Diet Coke and stuff to make nachos or bread and cheese with a note, I can't do anything to actually help you, false, but I can cover dinner. 
I think about this a lot now. She saw me. She knew my favorites. She acknowledged the ridiculousness of it all. She did something now that has stood out to me over the years. Here's Suzanne Deggs-White again, telling me about what she thinks is the most important and cheapest gift you can give a struggling caregiver. think about one of the biggest gifts that we can give to the caregivers we know, and that's active listening. If I'm an active listener, I'm going to listen to everything you say. I'm going to observe what you're doing. I'm going to see how you're feeling. I'm going to say, Lisa, what I think you, what I think I hear you saying is, Lisa, what I think you might need is, correct me if I'm wrong, but here's something maybe I can do to help you. And it's me. The best gifts you've ever gotten are far, probably from people who observe you, who watch you, who listen to what you say and they don't say, Lisa, what would you like for your birthday? The people who care about us do know. And I think about the best gifts I've been given are ones that, wow, I didn't, how did you know I wanted that? How did you know I've always admired that? And it's because we're watching someone, we're caring for them and observing them and we're tuning into them without having to make them tell us what they need, that we're giving them the gift of observation. And I think that's something huge that we don't think about with the people in our lives often enough who need support. Boundaries are important. What if you don't know what they want? Well, then maybe you should back off a little and do something more appropriate for your level of intimacy. You know, and that's true because there are so many different levels of friendship. There's so many ways we connect with people. And not everyone is going to be the one to come in and do the dirty work Mm -hmm. for you to take a shower. But there are people who are going to do things, whether it's, can I pick up a prescription for you when I'm running to the drugstore? A neighbor can pick up, you know, oh, they had two for one of this item and I know how much you love this thing. So here I picked it up. So there are different types of support. There's informational support. If we see a book or we hear something, sometimes sharing information with someone can be helpful. Assessment support. Yeah, you know, it sounds like you're really doing things right. I've dealt with this or my parent dealt with this or a friend dealt with this. And it sounds like what you're going through is similar to what they did, but it sounds like you're doing such a good job. So confirming people. Oh, I like that. And sometimes just feeling validated, even if you don't know someone well, if you just see someone in the neighborhood, wow, you've done such a good job. You're working so hard. I really am impressed. You know, so sometimes validating the work mm-hmm. we're doing is something anyone can give us. So kind of that level of friendship, what are the things you'd ask someone to do? Well, think about what would you ask a friend to do? Who are the friends you'd show up at two in the morning because you'd locked yourself out of your house? Those are the friends you can do much more intimate kind of chores for. What Suzanne is describing, those different levels of intimacy that can tell us how to support each other, reminds me of something called the ring theory of grief. Developed by psychologist Susan Silk, it imagines our relationships and series of concentric circles. At the center is the person who is struggling, who in this case would be the caregiver. And the next biggest circle would be those closest to them, like a spouse. The next biggest circle would be those a little further out, like parents or siblings. The next circle would be close friends, and so on and so on, until the largest circle contains strangers and bystanders. Susan Silk's theory is that the person at the center of the circles can talk about their struggle to anyone in a circle further out from them, but those on the outer circles can only offer support to the people closer to the center than themselves. 
What this means is that while it's appropriate for the caregiver to discuss their stress with a friend, it's not appropriate for that friend to offer their own stress in return, only support. Or as another example, it can be good and healthy for the spouse of a caregiver to talk about how hard the situation is with a parent or friend. They should only offer comfort and support to the caregiver themselves, the person at the center of the circle. Understanding where you stand in relationship to the caregiver in your life will help us best determine what level of comfort and support we can offer them, as well as help us know who we should talk to about our own struggles. Here's what philosopher and healthcare expert David Shank had to say about how different people can offer support in different ways. We don't know each other very well, but you know, I'll go to the emergency room with totally. you. Just don't ask me to change the diapers right. or something, right? <laughs> I think that that's something that we're going to need to pay more and more attention to. Sometimes church communities can help. Any kind of club can help. Yeah. Could be the bridge club, could be the book club, could be the yacht club. Well, probably not the yacht club, but <laughs> you know, anywhere people are gathered together as friends. But yeah. I do think this is going to be something that needs attention. So how to cobble this together is important. But if I gather the five or six people that I know in town now, they're going to need to talk about expectations. Bill is going to say, I faint at the sight of blood, so, you know, just keep me away from this. Or I'll clean up any kind of horrible. Or I love to cook. Or you might say, oh, I love to fight insurance companies. I'll do the insurance. Yeah. So what if you're the caregiver and people keep asking you this question, is there anything I can do for you? Well, Natalie Edmonds has a more empowering way to answer this. I talk to my care blazers all the time about this. And one of the hardest things, well, first of all, I want to say all of the people outside looking in, they truly do want to be helpful. And so I talk to them about keep a running list of everything you do during the day that doesn't necessarily have to be done by you. This doesn't have to include hands-on caregiving if you don't want it to, but it certainly can. It could go from anything from mowing the lawn, grocery shopping, picking up medicines, cleaning the home, sending cards, Anything at all that you find yourself doing during the day, I actually walk them through the exercise. I say, hey, for a full day, jot down everything you're doing. And then keep all that in a phone, like a notes app, something you always have on you. And then the next mm. time somebody says, hey, let me know if there's anything I can do for you, you totally have, because in on the spot, when you're not prepared for it, you don't know oh, really know. what to say. But if you had a phone list or you were keeping all the things you do on the top of your mind, you can actually say, you know what? I don't know if you or anybody you know is able to mow my grass, but I'm really having a hard time keeping up with that. And so you have a response for them. And if they say no, they say no, but at yeah. least you've asked. If we try to control all of the things we don't have control over, which is everybody else, we're going to increase our burnout and stress. But if we start controlling what we do have control over, which is how do I want to respond when I know the inevitable question is coming? Yeah. Then we start to take more power back and we can start to feel more in control and actually have more help. I have to pause here for a minute and speak to the caregivers who are not being asked. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you or is there anything I can do for you? Those caregivers who feel isolated and wish that anyone would offer to help, even if they stumble over the question. So what happens when you're not being asked this question, when you're not being offered help, and you're not overwhelmed with choices, but you're overwhelmed with isolation? I want to acknowledge that. 
And I also think this is a really great reminder for those of us who are not in an intense caregiving situation right now to stop and take a look around at the people in our lives who may be caregiving and need a little help. A moment just to pause and consider what five, 10 minutes an offer for help might mean to a loved one. Here's how caregiver Bianca Padilla explained it. With caregiving, there's a lot of, I think, anger and, and of course, sadness, right? And those, those two are the same side, you know, two sides of the same coin. But there's a lot of uh, like anger that does build and resentment towards people around you, right? Your family, your friends that stop showing up. Yeah. And so I always encourage people like, hey, if you know a caregiver, please reach out. Please text them that they're doing a good job. Please offer, you know, help. A lot of times they feel such a burden and they don't want to put that burden on anyone else. And so anytime I get the opportunity to, to encourage other people, you all know a caregiver, you know, there's 50 million of them in the United States, 20% of the population. Please reach out, offer, you know, a warm meal, offer to take care of somebody so they can go away for a couple hours because caregiving is, is really exhausting. I can't stress this enough. If one of your friends or family members is a caregiver, please reach out. As a caregiver, someone reaching out can make all of the difference. It did to me. And when a person doesn't reach out, you feel that too. I had friends who I was really close to before my caregiving journey who I thought would be there for me, but for whatever reason, they weren't. And maybe they just felt inadequate or they were afraid of getting too close, I don't know. And honestly, it doesn't change the fact that it hurt. And I'm not close to those people like I used to be. They weren't there for me when I was at my most vulnerable and that really changed our relationship in negative ways. In our last episode, we talked about the loneliness of caregiving. We know that caregiving can be isolating and every caregiver needs a shoulder to cry on. That shoulder to cry on shouldn't be the person they're caring for, right? Because that person is dealing with their own problems. And so the caregiver is devoting a ton of their time and attention to this relationship that is ultimately one-sided. Caregivers desperately need relationships outside of the person they're caring for. And that's very complicated. Remember the ring theory? When you're in the middle of the circle, you can complain and look for support out. But if you're outside the ring, you never complain in. As with any social interaction, it can be awkward if you don't know how to talk about difficult things. I like what Lauren Lowry has to say about how not all caregivers are the same. I'm not sure all caregivers really want to talk with other people about what they're going through. But if they are, not trying to fix it, not trying to solve the problem, right? Just holding space for them, just listening, being a shoulder to lean on and saying, yeah, that's hard. Mm. That's hard, but I'm here. Lauren Lowry reminded me that some of the most helpful times that my friends really showed up for me was when they would just echo back to me, I don't understand, but that sounds really, really hard. And it seems so simple and so elementary to say, wow, that sounds really hard. But when someone who knows you really well and has taken the time to listen to you and see you says it's hard and you believe them, it feels so validating. You'll remember Emily Campbell from episode three. She talked a lot about the loneliness and isolation of caregiving. She's also one because she's been caregiving for so long who knows how to ask for help and she knows who to ask for help. 
sometimes it's hard to hear people talk about having a special needs child. And I know we use this phrase like the toxic positivity, but sometimes that's real when people are like, oh, this is a huge blessing and we are so lucky. I feel that way. I feel like we are so lucky to host Connor. I feel like Connor's life is special. It makes my life special too. And I do feel so incredibly lucky to be his mom because people have no idea how amazing it is to be Connor's mom, right? But I am also absolutely completely honest. It is a literal poop show. You know, you have to laugh at it. You have to vent about it. You have to cry about it a lot. And you have to be able to have people to cry to and say, this sucks. And my life is the worst and nobody has it worse than me, which we know isn't true, but you got to be able to say that. I swear that's how we cope. And also sometimes some really bad swears. I want to jump in here right now and say, I didn't understand when I was a caregiver in the midst of it all, why that question, is there anything I can do for you, made my skin crawl. And now I understand why. It's because of what I was experiencing, not the intentions of the other person. And as I've really thought about my own experience and what honestly helped strengthen me, and it was a lot of different things, I feel like it's the connection with other people that's the key to it all when they brought their real and vulnerable self to a conversation. And that meant commiserating with me and complaining with me and laughing with me and offering solutions. I mean, it meant a lot of different things. But one thing they all had in common, and that was that they just took the time to listen. I love what Suzanne Deggs-White says about the importance of just listening listening and letting people feel their feelings, I think is one of the biggest gifts. When we try not to let people be overwhelmed, don't let people suffer in silence. Give them a space, give them a place that they can cry, they can scream, make it okay for them to be human because superhuman folks don't make it very long. They just get overwhelmed. Yeah, I think that the sacredness and the intimacy of connection in these moments of life and death, it's so painful and yet so powerful. And when people can be there for you in the way you need them to be, that's the biggest gift to caregivers, to know that they're being seen because you can feel sometimes that you're lost in your grief and alone and your family's so nuclear. But when people reach in and connect, it keeps you connected to the world that continues and helps you ease back in. And the people who are there for a caregiver as the person they're they're caring for is if their life is coming to an end are going to be the people that are there for you when you're needing to come back out yep. into this world and it's the people who step back and say what can I do let me know who aren't going to be there for you when it's time for you to reintegrate back into this larger space and so it's what a gift to be there for our caregivers when they're going through the darkest moment and to be there consistently if you mention the darkest moments in caregiving, the caregivers know what you're talking about. And it's so different for each person. For me, it was those moments when I was all alone and I had to make impossible decisions by myself. And in order to unburden myself of the pressure, the stress, the pain, the suffering, I would have to talk about it and process it later with my friends, with my family, with someone who I felt could really see me in that moment. What happens in caregiving is you realize very quickly who's sticking around and who's not. And it 
100% surprises people. No caregiver that I've ever talked to says, yep, the, uh, the people who I thought was were going to be there for me ended up being there for me in the end. There's always a little bit of a twist and turn. The greatest gift that anyone has ever given me are those few dear friends and family who said, I'm here and I'll always be here. I'll be here now during this time and I'll be here in the future. And I knew that they really meant it. I want to end by introducing you to a new voice, Carlos Olivius. I really loved my conversation with Carlos and I was really struck by an unexpected moment that he had that meant the world to him. Saturday, my friend says, hey, are you around? Just wanted to come by. I'm like, yeah, sure. Dad just went to bed. And we sat in the warm weather and had a conversation, just shooting the breeze. Yeah. It was comforting because at that moment, it was unexpected. It meant so much to me. It still means so much to me. Yeah. Getting delivered food or other resources that I don't have to really put too much thought into it. It's just there. And it's meant with compassion and love. It was random. And it was so much appreciated. Mm -hmm. It filled my cup up. And I'm smiling right now because of just reminiscing about that moment. It was, you know, half hour, but I felt seen, I felt heard, and I felt comforted without going into the details of it all. We were just talking about life and laughing and enjoying each other's company. And that's what I needed right then in that moment. I was tired. It had been a long day and I still needed to do extra stuff around the house. But it put in perspective that I was able to take a moment to hang out with my friend that came out of his way just to see me. We don't have to overthink how we help caregivers. And I hope that by taking a stab at this question, is there anything I can do for you? Or let me know if there's anything I can do for you. I hope by bringing up that question, we've really gotten to the heart of what caregivers need when it changes so often and when sometimes they don't know what to say. I love doing this podcast because I like talking about things that we don't normally talk about and really uncover them as ways to make better connections with each other. I get really emotional thinking about caregiving, whether it's my kids or my late husband or anyone. I promised myself that I would never forget what it felt like and that I would always say something instead of nothing, that I would always try to do something, even if it was the wrong thing, rather than nothing. And I still stand behind that. As a Christian and as a follower of Christ, I'm literally trying to love one another. And that involves me really taking care of people. I value relationships over most things. And any conversation that we can have about how to better take care of each other is a conversation worth having. So whether you keep saying, let me know if there's anything I can do for you, or you start saying, can I bring you dinner tonight or tomorrow night? Or can I take you on a walk? I wanna hear how things are really going. However you reach out, according to whatever level of friendship or relationship you have with the other person, do something. Don't do nothing.